As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that this is the year 10,191. The known podcast world is ruled by pretty much pop, a culture podcast. And this time, the most timely film topic in our universe is the Dune franchise. Dune extends its franchise's life. Dune expands consciousness. Dune is vital to, I don't know, getting movies going again after the pandemic. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, and I have been mutated by the Dune books over many years. And the Dune books give me the ability to fold the corners of pages that I might want to go back to, to travel to any part of the Dune universe's timeline without getting off my ass. Oh yes, I forgot to tell you, the Dune franchise exists in only one mind in the entire universe, a desolate, dry mind with vast deserts. It's Frank Herbert, dead since 1986, and you know, his son, who's still writing more books, and the four different filmmakers who've had a crack at this. Will this franchise lead us to true freedom? And we have a panel here. My goodness, way to pay homage to David Lynch's Dune. I'm Brian Hurt. I'm here with a hot take that Dune is really just a ripoff of Star Wars. Or maybe the other way around. Who else is with us today? I'm Erin Conrad. I'm senior editor for 3FISpace.net. I'm a TV and film reviewer, and I've been reading Dune and all of its various pieces and parts since high school. I found you because I was looking for journalists, people who are writing about this online, who talked yeah. about Chapter House Dune. That was my search term. <laughs> Anybody who goes that damn deep into the series. And I want to call you Other Brian, but Brian Hurt is, according to my children, Other Brian. And uh, this Brian is <laughs> Uncle Brian. Yeah, I'm Brian Casey. Mark's brother-in-law, and I come at this from a fan perspective. I have no particular expertise other than I've read a fair bit of SFF in general and a good number of the Dune books, the main ones more than once. Besides your brother Dylan being a Partially Examined Life co-host, you have been a guest with us when we interviewed sci-fi author David Brin. That's right. I pushed that out of my memory. <laughs> <laughs> And now that we're older, I can confess to the world that you are my game master, that you've been, for 15-odd years, save the pandemic, have been leading the geekiest pastime that I participate in. Yes, you have outed me as a uh, long-time role-playing game participant and game master. This is true. And I think you were the guy that kind of got me, after graduate school, when I hadn't read fiction for a long time, turned me on to Game of Thrones and stuff like that, like things that were oh, there's good stuff in this genre fiction that I used to read before when I had a when I had a life, and I should get back to that. Oh, thank you, Mark, for mentioning it. That's <laughs> what I meant to say. Dune is just a ripoff of Game of Thrones. So I, I misspoke when I said a ripped off Star Wars. Not to get us back on track or anything. So yes, this we're doing this now because of the new film. Obviously, maybe it would have been smarter to wait until the second half of the book was adapted, but it's fine. There's plenty lurking in the background, and they're doing this Benny Gesserit prequel series, I guess, is in some stages of development at HBO. So we're definitely entering a period where the culture is giving this franchise another whack to see. Can we uh, kind of give some opening thoughts on what we think about the potential of this, what we think about the new film, wherever you want to start? Aaron, do you want to start us as guest journalist? I really wanted to love the movie. I felt like the only way to do this justice was to do a big budget Game of Thrones style series. And even the previous miniseries didn't quite do it justice, but it was a sketch of a film. You know, let's take 
this piece and then this piece and then this piece. And that's really all we got. It was visually beautiful. I loved that about it, but we got very little character development. We didn't get development of any of the real plots. So I thought it was a disappointment. Brian Casey, hot take? Pretty similar, I guess. I have the, I don't know, I guess, advantage, disadvantage that I've read Dune at least a half a dozen times over the years. And so I'm very familiar with the source material of Dune itself, as well as I've read the other books in the series more than once. And so going in, I have a difficult time saying, oh, they changed this. They left this out on both big things and little things and not just appreciating the movie for this is a story being told in a completely different medium. And I should you know, try to enjoy it for that. Having said that, I think that I probably agree with Aaron. I think there's so much in the book in terms of both plot and character and then just the world building. You know, there's a lot of organizations that get filled out a little bit in the book that they only have time to hint at you know, with costume and score and, you know, a scene here and there in the movie. It's hard to translate something that's sort of a whole setting, not just a story, into one film. And if they make more of them, maybe they'll be able to fill in those or with the series that you mentioned, they'll be able to kind of fill in the other elements of that. I enjoyed the movie, but I wasn't blown away by the movie. I don't know that disappointment for me is the right reaction because I didn't actually expect them to be able to put the book as I experienced the book on screen. And so I tried to separate that as much as I could. On its own, I think I still probably would have liked a few things differently than they did. Did you see it on the big screen or the small screen? I did actually uh, don a mask and go into a theater to watch it, which I'm glad I did. I mean, it was shot with a large screen in mind, you know, lots of cinematic visuals of terrible architecture and or beautiful deserts with little people in the foreground. The cinematics were nice. I thought it did a nice job of conveying scale and things like that. Those cool dragonfly helicopters and the weather balloon things hauling the harvesters around. Yeah, I was actually pleased that they went with actual beating wing ornithopters as they're described in the book, whereas other adaptations, they haven't done that. So that was kind of neat. That was my one disappointment, Brian, was that they were beating wings, but an ornithopter is specifically a bird wing. And it was clearly a like a dragonfly that they were and I thought like a hummingbird wing, maybe if you you know did it fast enough. It's like an engineering. It wouldn't work. I I still don't know why Frank Herbert thought it was a good idea. No, I agree. (laughs) There's no way it would work, but there's like a thousand things that aren't going to work. And so I thought, well, (laughs) well, beyond which they have anti-gravity technology for their lights in their bedroom. Why wouldn't they use them for (laughs) for their flying ships? (laughs) Maybe maybe suspensors draw the worms the same way that shields do. I don't remember if they talked about that or not. Well, I saw with Brian Casey in the theater and you complained right after how it's too tempting for filmmakers when they hear about the Baron Harkonnen's anti-gravity armpit holders, you know, things to hold up his blubber to not have him fly around like Superman, that at least in this version, he merely hovered and loomed and wasn't sailing around as in the other two takes on this. Yeah, that was, I guess, a mild relief for me. I was still <laughs> disappointed. I thought, you know, early on when he was just had the, the little glowing things on his back and, you know, he was standing up ponderously that, oh, OK, they're going to just have him counteracting his weight. And then, you know, he had to hover up menacingly over the ground and, as you say, loom. But it was a little less of the maniacal flying about from the Lynch version. Any opening statements? Your Your history with the series here? Sure. I am a big fan of Dune and I've read the original several times and I really adore in a naive way the David Lynch version. And I guess I liked the sci-fi channel one all right. I have not read any of the sequels. I actually started reading Paul of Dune because I had a chance to meet Kevin Anderson at a book signing event here in Lincoln, Nebraska. I just didn't get through it. I thought the movie was, I would describe it as predictably excellent. It kind of checked all my boxes and met my expectations, but in a lot of ways met my expectations very exactly. I think I know what to expect from Denis Villeneuve as a director at this point, and 
it was precisely what I thought we would get. I don't know that I got much new out of it. I don't think watching this movie suddenly made me understand Dune in any new sort of way, but it was very just enjoyable to take it in as a aesthetic exercise and see scenes that are very familiar to me, just repainted by a, a new artist. I immediately sat down to rewatch it and then accidentally rewatched the David Lynch version. So what are you going to do? It was, <laughs> I was like, I got to rewatch this. And then HBO Max said, would you like to see this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I, I think I do. And then to hear Gurney Halleck would have been Jean-Luc Picard, right? Yeah. With a little pug that he's holding as he cries out for Duke Leto and runs into battle. That was just such a, an enjoyable moment. I don't think I was giddy at all during the new movie as much as I was rewatching the David Lynch masterpiece. And Mark, what's your hot take? Well, <laughs> just as you were bringing up, folks cannot see Brian Casey's expressions when the David Lynch <laughs> one is mentioned. We'll get your wrath on that soon. Um, I've been, you know, I'd read the five books like in high school. I'd never read the sixth. I had not revisited much except that we had a David Lynch episode last year. So I rewatched this for that. And I, I think in general, like my expectations for movies are so low because we hadn't had until very recently this sort of Game of Thrones model where, oh, we could actually capture all the characterization and the philosophical discussion and maybe even more because people have had another 20 years or however long it's been to rethink the source material. I'm thinking about Walking Dead, that when they turned that into a show, that things that happened very quickly in the comic books were drawn out over a couple seasons because like with the comic books, he was like, I don't know, this could get canceled immediately. <laughs> so, you know, with this, we had, I think we can give mild spoilers about the shape of the sequels. I don't want to get sort of specific about the fate of this, that, but Duncan Idaho in this version played by Jason Momoa. Yes. Jason Momoa. You know, <laughs> Aaron is shaking her head at that. He doesn't do anything for me. He does ever, ever. He's a nice guy, but... He is beautiful. I mean, <laughs> he really is. So he has that going for him. Go ahead, Mark. So when Frank Herbert wrote the Dune 1 book, I guess people were shocked that that character got killed off. And so they were like, you should bring this back. And I think this is from a Brian Herbert interview or something. I got that, that it was sort of like a misery situation, you know, where they, in the film Misery, the Stephen King book, the author has killed off the favorite character and the fans are rabid that you need to bring this. And somehow people like Duncan Idaho enough so that in what will be movie three of this series, I think Denis Villeneuve was clearly making it so you would want this character to come back in some way and be established as really beloved. So he had to show up just hugging Paul multiple times. Oh, wait, like every time he shows up, it's only been five minutes later as far as us watchers go, but he's showed up in another scene to embrace them. So that's just an example of like the fact that we know where the story is going or the filmmakers know where the story is going. And so they can even make it potentially better. I don't know if that's a better, but you could. <laughs> Duncan Idaho, according to the Brian Herbert books is a golem. He's been reincarnated dozens of times. In the first three books of Dune, you know, he's, I don't know if we're supposed to spoiler this or not. I, mean, I the think books we can spoil long this time. particular so, moment. Yes. He dies defending Paul's escape. And then in the end of Dune Messiah, the second book, he's brought back as sort of a reanimated clone that it has given his memories back through a, a stress point. And that becomes a whole temptation point for Paul. It's a turning point in the story, whether he will give up control of certain things in order to get his consort, I guess, not wife, Chaney, Chaney. It's pronounced both different ways in different movie adaptations. So I don't know what Herbert wanted. I think Dick, Dick Chaney, Dick Chaney. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Let's not even go there. A few years ago, I had re-listened to the audiobook of Dune or experienced it as an audiobook and immediately went right into Paul of Dune because, which is one of the Brian Herbert, Kevin J. Anderson interstitial books that they've written a lot of prequels. They've written some interstitial books. They also finished up the series, right? Books seven and eight of the initial series. So I really immersed myself in this stuff. I was so shocked the first time, maybe the same reaction you had, Brian Hurt, in shifting over to oh, this is not Frank Herbert. I can't. Even though it was the same, it was Scott Brick was the narrator of both audiobooks. So it was like, 
literally the same voice reading these words to me. And Paul of Dune starts right after Dune has stopped before the second Frank Herbert book is, you know, stuffed right in the middle there. I just couldn't take it. I didn't know it's Frank Herbert has such a distinctive writing style and is so philosophically filled out. Like, I don't know if the philosophy actually makes a lot of sense. But it's at least really thoughtful, and he uses a lot of, uh, you know, like Star Trek will use techno babble. I, I feel like Frank Herbert uses philosophy babble that he just, oh, it's the Zen Sunni uh, warriors. That's that's what the Benny Jesuit, it, you know, it's something from history that he can shove in there. Anyway, this time I got over that and got my way through all the Frank Herbert books included in order in, you know, two of those interstitial books, the Paul of Dune and Winds of Dune, got up to the first post Frank Herbert book. I guess they found an outline of like what was supposed to happen, this grand climax that Chapter House supposedly ends on a cliffhanger. I didn't consider it that much of a cliffhanger. It would have been fine if it stopped there, but there were certainly things that were unexplained of like who these whole groups of people that they'd introduced in the last couple of books were. And so having that sorted out, so I listened to the, the next book beyond that, and it's revealed at the end of that book that like, oh, well, you, you really need to have read the prequels that we, Brian uh, Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, wrote about the Butlerian Jihad, you know, which is 10,000 years before the main dude. You really need to have read those to get what the next book is going to be to recognize these characters. So I just kind of threw up my hands in uh, despair and I'm about a third of the way through the Butlerian Jihad right now. If you're going through the trouble to write all this stuff and you have characters that can remember all their past lives and you have, you know, machine characters and resurrectable characters and all this stuff like I guess it makes sense that you should, there's no historical barrier. So for how far back they could have freaking Shakespeare running around as a character here. They could have the literal Greek Agamemnon would be, why not? <laughs> That's an interesting point that they never do though. In Herbert's original books, the only one that really comes back is Duncan Idaho, because the, there are other memories that exist in Leto and some of the Bene Gesserit, but the only one that's really resurrected is Duncan Idaho. And then as the books go on, there's sort of more and more of that done. And then when uh, the Frank Herbert books peter out and get taken over, I feel like the ones that continued the story decided, oh, we have this ability to resurrect people. So let's bring back Paul twice and make one of them, you know, a goateed evil Paul. And let's bring back Jessica and let's bring back her husband, but have him be 20 years younger, because that's how they grow. And let's not bring back any famous artists or famous other leaders or, you know, non <laughs> core story people. You know, it's like, I guess we're not going to, I don't know. It's just, it, for me, it felt very ham-fisted, the books that came after. A podcast on the Brian Herbert books. I'm not sure I would have signed up for it, but... <laughs> Mark, you do raise a question, and maybe Brian and Aaron, and I guess all three of you would know better than me. I think this is what you're getting at, Mark, is how much is our Earth and history, how much does it inform the world of Dune? I mean, I feel like it's, what is it, 10,000 or so after? I mean, it's 8,000 years after us. and At least. I mean, the 10,000 years, it's maybe marked after the Butlerian Jihad. I think in the first book, it's unclear what the year 10,000 is marked from. Okay. And that may may go back and forth as you read some of the other books. Okay. Well, that's good to know. You know, as, as a uh, Jew who was always slightly indignant about everything, of course, I had to look to see if Frank Herbert was an uh, anti-Semite. And I came across, you know, and there's always discussion of the Fremen as, you know, being nomads, glorifying Palestinians, whatever. It doesn't matter. What The point I'm getting at is I came across an article showing that Judaism still exists in Frank Herbert's world. And it's like one of the only things that remains, which I think is pretty awesome. Well, there's the Orange Catholic Bible. I'm not sure where the orange comes from, but... That is a thing, although it's sort of a thing and they don't really ever have any Catholic religious practices that I can tell. They just it's a thing for Gurney Halleck to pull quotes out of throughout the book. Right. I understand it's an ecumenical combination of a whole bunch of earth religions. And I think it's Catholic, probably in a lowercase c sense of the word. I think that would be a huge mistake, Mark, having 
Shakespeare running around. Just to close your thought on that terrible <laughs> idea. Well, so, I, you know, I don't want us to do too many spoilers of the late books, but the one that Brian Casey was mentioning, it's basically like Dune Babies is what I thought that like at a certain point is let's get all the characters from the first book and regrow them. And I'm just, my palm is planted firmly on my forehead at that point. And it's not that they do horrible. It's not that they have wacky adventures. I got that sense from some of the interstitial books. That even like this Paul of Dune, even though some of it takes place right after the original Dune, some of that is actually flashbacks of like, let's retroactively say that Paul has been off planet before and he's got to run around and have adventures with his friend. This is sort of getting at like, what really are the prospects of this? This is very schizophrenic as a franchise because some of it is the future books, even that Frank Herbert wrote are like, let's see what happened 2000 years later. Let's see what happened 2,000 years after that. And after he's done that a couple of times, then you're like, well, considering the Butlerian Jihad 10,000 years before all this is not too crazy. Like, it's all part of, like, he's really interested in long-term timeline stuff. But then coupling with that with, oh, let's do the kind of, like, Star Wars novel thing where, what was Boba Fett doing beforehand? Let's get more into Duncan Idaho's backstory and tell the story about how he was hunted on the Harkonnen world. Like, Okay. The time scale, though, is one of the themes that runs through the Dune books. The sense that people in general, they don't have a sense of tasks that are longer than a few moments and certainly not longer than a single lifetime. And the Bene Gesserit and some of the other organizations, they plan projects where the plan is for them to be centuries or millennia long. And one of the books, you know, they're growing a tree that's going to take 500 years to get to the height that they need to cut it down to be the new beam and the new building that they're going to build for a chapter house outpost. This tree, it's 400 years into its 500 year growth. And that idea of very long term outlook runs through all of the books. I mean, the not having a long term outlook is one of the things that Leto and God Emperor That's why he just takes on, you know, trying to put the universe onto the golden path, you know, have humanity survive and stuff like that is because people in general don't have that long-term outlook. So Aaron, what do you want out of this as sort of a a long-term franchise? I really don't know, because I think it would be very difficult to follow Frank Herbert's huge time jumps that we're just talking about. The next book is 3,500 years in the future. Well, why haven't things changed? That doesn't make any sense to me. But you'd almost have to go off script. You know, you really would to have a long-term franchise. But to do just that one book justice would have to be maybe a a two-season series. I don't know. Since series these days are only 10 episodes, that's not going to get you very far. There's so much in the books that gets to be uninteresting. Like, let's skip this next 40 pages. Long conversations. Yeah. And do we really want to see and I can't even remember the name of the race now, growing body parts in tanks. The Benny Tleilocks, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do we really want to see that happen, you know, or is that important to the story? Let's stop and pay the bills. Maybe that there Quizas Haderach can know all things, be all places at all times. But you and me, if we want to book an appointment with a doctor, things can go wrong. Maybe you can't get an appointment for a long, long time. You get into an appointment, the person does not take your insurance. Maybe it's a crummy doctor, and you wish you'd looked at some ratings beforehand. Well, just download the free ZocDoc app, the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. So it's a search engine of sorts. You put in the kind of doctor you want to find. It shows you local options, only those who take your insurance that you've specified. And it's got to verify patient reviews, and you can book an appointment right in the app. So you never have to wait on hold of the receptionist again. I found this super helpful in booking an eye appointment recently. You can do it for any specialty. ZocDoc has you covered. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and maybe you should be one of those too. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now's the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com slash PMP. Download the ZocDoc app, sign free, and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash PMP. If you're like most people, you are carrying debt. And debt on your credit card, carry forward month after month, that just gets you deeper and deeper. So you might want to look at debt consolidation. And Upstart is a fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan all online. So whether it's paying off those credit cards, 
consolidating other high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Will they give you money? Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. So you can just go and with a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 and can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Should you do this? Well, do some research. I'm just reading the copy they gave me. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payment today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and a certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. Some of the Brian Herbert stuff is a lot more story driven Mm -hmm. of the prequels with how did Mentats come about and what happened with the artificial intelligence, Agamemnon and, and all of the robot creatures that caused not to have artificial intelligence in the Dune world. Some of those were pretty interesting, at least in terms of story. Yeah, we should talk about that as sort of a primary science fiction gimmick, is that at least in the Dune books as given to us originally, this is something that happened way in the past, this Butlerian Jihad, where humanity had been enslaved. It had been a Terminator sort of situation, I guess. But they were already on many planets, so it's harder for the Terminators to chase everybody down when they're already across a million planets. It's more like the Borg or something, I guess. Or the uh, the Orville. They have their evil robot race that is much more direct than anything like that in Star Trek, because in Star Trek also has kind of a, oh no, the guy who made Data died immediately. Like, there's not a million Datas or, you know, one Data Ubermind rolling over. But they go into that in Picard very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, they give us the seeds of the Butlerian Jihad all over again in the Star Trek world. So, so that's all interesting, but this is just like in the past, what has humanity done to compensate for this is that they've developed these specializations and mutated themselves and developed these, like what is human potential? How much discipline can we teach? How much can we breed certain traits so that we'll eventually get precognitives and all these other kind of weirdos. And how can we mutate now that we know what the spice does? You know, how can we mutate people into things other than navigators? Are there potential for anything else beyond that? Can we create super athletes using the spice or soldiers or something? You know, I don't know. You know, we've already got the navigators who are hyper mutated. And the mentats who... I don't know what the juice of Safu is exactly, but in, in the Dune movie, right, they're not using spice, but they're using some chemicals to, by will alone, set their minds in motion. And I think what, what Mark calls a gimmick, I'll call a trope. But what makes it really interesting is not that Frank Herbert is dealing with it in Dune, but that he has dealt with it way in the future. So it's the outcome. It's I feel like, not that it can't be done well again and again, right? Because... I really enjoyed Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons, and I didn't particularly care that much for Picard, but someone else will do it again well, and that'll be great, but that it's dealt with in so many different ways. But they still manage to stay away from, at least as far as we know in the first book, to compensate for artificial intelligence and computers by doing various things to the human body. It's not vital, really, to the first book, maybe in ways that it is in future ones. It's, I mean, you've talked about robots and things that are not really hinted at in the first book necessarily as existing contemporaneously in the events of the first book or afterward. I guess I should really read these at some point and find (laughs) out. They don't exist contemporaneously. They were banned and outlawed, which is why you have the navigators and you have the mentats and all of that. Do they come back, Aaron? I mean, or in the future? Well, eventually. That's the spoiler that I'll just give for, I guess, books eight. (laughs) That's some trace of this that I think it's a kind of retroactively, and maybe this is something that was planned from the beginning is that, you know, it's not even just a Terminator thing of like AI will get out of control, but what AI was doing to human beings in the first place, it's a Wally critique is that we need human beings to challenge themselves and to not stagnate. And this is, you know, having these machines made us all lazy and just outsource all the actual thinking and work to machines. And it's not just that, okay, eventually then the AI will take over and be our bosses. It's just that thing in itself is bad for humanity. And I think that's a lot what this, like the golden path of various sorts, 
whether it's Paul's or Paul's son later, is trying to make humanity, it's a little unclear, but definitely not stagnate, but yet also not kill itself off. (laughs) Um, There's just an ever-present danger of like either humanity will go stagnation or it'll go completely paroxysms of conflict. And somehow we have to walk the narrow path between both of those things. And how do we do that over thousands of years? It seems when you have a really long timeline, it almost makes it pointless because eventually whatever thing you're trying to do to to save the future is going to run out. Like, because it's now 20,000 years after you did that and nobody remembers that. And so humanity will eventually reproduce the same mistakes. I think we just need to watch the beginning of the pilot at Futurama while Fry is in stasis for a thousand years. (laughs) And society has rebuilt itself a few times. And that's just in a thousand years, right? The castles go up and then the aliens come and then the castles go up again and the aliens come again. So yeah, but you don't read a book. I mean, you're hopefully you're in the moment with the characters and feeling what they're feeling and the rest is all context for you. Otherwise, you're just reading the Bible at that point or the Silmarillion or whatever it is you're doing. And how much fun is that? That was something that bothered me about this movie is that there was no context. I really feel like anybody who didn't know at least the basics of Dune, just the first book, would be hopelessly lost or would be seeing it as just another one against the other kind of movie. Star Wars. Star Wars. They wouldn't understand any of the background. They wouldn't know the subtleties. Who is Jessica? Why did this person come and make Paul stick his hand in a box? We don't know. And then there was the one line that was a throw out when Lita was about to be killed, saying to Jessica, I should have married you. Well, where did that come from? You know, why did they bother throwing that in when we didn't realize that Jessica wasn't Lita's wife, that she was his concubine? There was no context in this film at all. All right. Points to David Lynch for at least explaining that line. All right. I need to hear Brian (laughs) Casey's beef on David Lynch, since we're not just discussing the latest Dune, but all Dunes. And I'm going to just put on some armor here and mention that I was, I'm going to say 12 or 13 when this movie came out. And as I said, my love of it is based a lot on how I loved it when it came out. Also that I had HBO like for the first time and I just kept watching it over and over again. And I'm sure I had a massive crush on Virginia Madsen. So with all that, go for it, Brian. Why should I not like this movie? In addition to all the bad acting. All right. So... I should preface this by I will never tell anybody not to like a movie. I have enjoyed all sorts of terrible movies. I think it's normal and healthy to like things that aren't necessarily good or that other people actively dislike. A lot of my dislike of the Lynch film, I think, comes from how badly, from my perspective, he chose to reimagine elements of the book in ways that were unnecessary and made no sense. As an example, in the book, the whole weirding way, which to Aaron's point is not explained at all in the movie. (laughs) It's just as a word that comes up. But in the books, it's a deep, heavily trained discipline of focus in martial arts and, and body awareness and all of these things. And in the movie, in Lynch's movie, it's like, I'm going to strap this thing around my neck and shout at things. And the little gun I'm holding in my hand will then make a sonic attack that blasts things apart. And I just, it made no sense to make that change. And it was dumb in, in the movie and as a comparison to the book. It bothered me a lot that they did that. And there were a number of other elements of the movie that I thought betrayed the story of the book rather than translating the book into a visual medium that I just didn't appreciate. I thought they went over the top with Baron Harkonnen covering him with pustules and making him as gross as possible. Unnecessary and kind of dumb. And I don't know, just it went on and on. There were parts of the Lynch movie that I enjoy just for sci-fi spectacle, I guess. And it's funny because there are a few things that are taken right out of the book. You know, both of the movies, the Lynch movie And the sci-fi miniseries, they take certain quotes out of the book and put them into their characters' mouths. And, okay, we'll take that right out of the book. And then we'll take this other element and completely change it. (laughs) I guess that's mostly why I don't enjoy the Lynch movie, is I feel like it is not very well done. And what it does try to do is not 
the Dune book, largely. <laughs> well, if your beef is that it's dumb, I guess we're really not in disagreement. It's just, I enjoy it. And there you go. That's fine. <laughs> but can you come up with any other adaptation of any other product that stuck strictly to the book? I mean, I can't. Game of Thrones certainly didn't. Outlander, I don't know if you're familiar at all with Outlander, but it's based on a series of eight books, you know, this three inches big, and that's running on stars right now. That's the primary series I write about. But fans complain that they change things and that things move. In fact, there's a character you were talking about, um, Duncan Idaho. There's a character that fans like too much for them to actually kill off. So the series brought him back. I can't think of any project that has had an adaptation that hasn't been like that. It's the nature of the book-to-film translation. Sure, and I expect certain changes to be done. I expect scenes to be compressed and characters to be merged together for time and space. And it's a visual medium. It's not a, you know, a written medium. And so all of those things are going to be different. And I expect a lot of those things. The problem that I had with the Lynch interpretation is that for example, with the translation of the weirding way into a weirding module, that felt to me like a completely unnecessary change. And it changes the nature of the characters and of the setting and the story substantially from the book. I don't know if he was just hoping to sell toys or what, <laughs> why they did that. That was a change that I think was a bad change in terms of reinterpreting the book source material into the movie. Getting rid of characters or changing who says certain things and all of the different things that you have to do to translate to a movie, I'm on board with. I believe that it has to be a different story because you're experiencing it differently. There are some things that I don't think had to be, though. There's a profound clumsiness to the Lynch movie that comes through with all the exposition and all the voiceover, which to have so many characters giving voiceover, I just don't think I've ever seen that in another movie. And when I watched the new one with my wife, she didn't, didn't ever make it through the original one with me, which is fine, of course. But <laughs> when we watched the new one, I, I asked her if she was as confused as she seemed to be with the original. And she said that she wasn't. The way they kind of slow played things out and they really they started with the Harkonnens as oppressors. That was the introduction. It wasn't the whole this is the universe and these are the players. And they kind of led us into this in a way that was sort of much more organic for the story and made sense. And I realized I'm so close to this material. I have no flippin' idea if this would make sense to a newbie or not. It's like, I can't go back to not knowing it because it's the story, at least of the original Dune is just so much a part of me, right? When they say, you know, something, when you know about something more than you know about your religion, it might be your religion. And I think Star Wars and Dune might be a couple of mine. So at least the, the original book. That's something that I've thought a lot about. When Outlander was about to come out, I started to write one of my very first posts for Three of My Space about, quick, quick, you've got time, go read the book. And it kind of, as I was thinking about it, and putting pen to paper figuratively, it came out to be, if you haven't read the book, don't. Wait till you've seen the adaptation. Wait till you've seen the first season. Then go back and read the book. And the book will fill in all of the missing pieces. You'll understand the TV show better. You'll understand the movie better. And I think for anybody who didn't read Dune ahead of time, wait till you see the movie. Because you and I are in that category now of this is too important to us. And we've been living with it for so long that we're nitpicking it. And we can't see how a newbie would get it or understand about the historic conflict between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. You know, we, we don't understand the Bene Gesserit. They don't. But if they don't, they're watching a movie that's beautiful. It's got a lot of action to it. And though he doesn't do anything for me, it's got Jason Momoa in it. And then go back. And Are you more book. a Timothy Chalamet guy? I guess that's. No, that's... not at all. No, no. Uh-uh. In fact, if, if they could have come back and what's his name, who was in the Lynch movie? Kyle MacLachlan, if they could have resurrected <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan as a younger one, you know, maybe. <laughs> but Timothy Chalamet, I didn't like him in Little Women. I didn't like him in this. So I think that's a sign that this was very smartly made, the new version here, because it just recognized that, yeah, you're not going to be able to tell that much of the story. So we're going to only cover half the book. That was the first great decision. 
so it could actually do it kind of justice and really concentrate on the visuals. Like, I don't know why the introduction of the Sardaukar really reminded me of the introduction of the Urukai in Fellowship of the Ring. We are Sardaukar. And with this weird <laughs> language that they made up for them, like, I don't know if there was a source for that in the book, but it was, you know, it was entertaining. And yeah, they could just introduce that stuff later. They could explain the weird kind of glide you in to like what the possibilities of what the Bene Gesserits could do. They just, you know, very carefully showed you what the voice is. That was kind of the only thing that you got to see this time is you got to see him try the voice and fail the voice. And then the voice actually plays into the plot in an important way that enables us then to escape. I don't know if they explained why he didn't just use the voice on the Fremen so that like, no, I won't fight you to the death. Don't fight me to the death. I'm just going to use the voice on you. I'm sure that is explained in the book, but I don't know. It went smooth enough that I, it didn't bother me too much. And it might be one of those things like, why didn't the Eagles just take them to the volcano in the first place that after the fact people can uh, worry about? And I thought the changes to the, at least it left things out so they could be introduced later. Let's not try to introduce Fade Routha and the, the Virginia Madsen character and really show much of the navigators so much left out of this first so that it could come in next time maybe come in the third movie, it could keep going, have some of these TV show spinoff things that would actually be comparing it to the that disaster of a Dark Tower movie of like, let's reduce this film series into an hour and a half movie. This was a way better <laughs> way of pursuing that, that just left things open that we could do it later. And unlike, I can't explain like Brian Casey, the, that change you're mentioning of how the weaponization of the weirding way was changed for the Lynch version. Generally with films, I don't expect them to tell the whole story just because my expectations in the pre-Game of Thrones, pre-Outlander are so low that I just expect them to like paint nice pictures showing me what I read about on screen. And so the Lynch movie, I think, did that for me. Like I enjoyed it in that sense. It's terrible as a retelling of the story, but like, for me, already knowing the story, those images were cool. I feel like we dodged a bullet. We haven't brought up the Jodorowsky version yet. So this is a version that was never actually made, you know, pre-David Lynch from, you know, would have come out in 1976 or something, could have potentially been the first big budget, the effect of Star Wars before Star Wars. Apparently, a lot of the artists went on to, like, do all the stuff for Alien and things. This is presented as a story of the most influential film never made in terms of its visual style. And I buy all that, but as they were describing in this documentary, the changes that were made to the story of like, uh, Leto is castrated. And so Paul is born by a drop of blood going into the ovum. And we're going to show this in a very graphic way. It's just, there were a half a dozen other things like that, that I'm like, I'm so glad this movie didn't get made. We really dodged a bullet on that. It's a great documentary, Yodorowsky's Dune. And if you haven't walked away from it believing that his movie would have been horrible, I'm going to direct everyone to a graphic novel called Showman Killer, which he wrote. It's actually three editions, but after buying the first one at a secondhand store, I refused to buy the other two. And it, you know, he wrote it and another, an artist drew it. And there's a lot of imagery very similar to what he had in mind for Dune. And it is just, I don't know what other movies... Yodorovsky made, but man, not a great storyteller. And so as we're uh, thinking about whether David Lynch succeeded or failed, I think Yodorovsky being stopped in his tracks was probably a good thing. Though I do recommend that movie about his failed attempt to make it because it's, it's pretty good. And that mythical book, the Dune book that he would bring into producers, seems like it would be a pretty cool thing to have. The storyboard with all the art that the artist did, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little more than a storyboard, though, because it's a lot of the graphics from Chris Foss, as well as H.R. Geiger and all the other just, you know, visualizations and the sort of stuff that he had in mind for the movie that, as you say, Mark, might have gotten rolled into some other things, including Alien and Masters of the Universe and bunch of other different movies. Well, and one of the reasons he got stopped that he, he just couldn't get funding for it was he wanted to make it really long. He wanted to make it like, I think he was exaggerating in the, in the documentary by saying, Oh, it could be 12 hours long. Like, I don't think he really was going to make that, but you know, at least that would have retained more of the story such as he interpreted it. I'm kind of one of those people about the David Lynch movies that blame the producers and like all those 
voiceovers and stuff like that was all stuff that was put in to just explain to a thoroughly confused audience why this thing that had been cut down to an actual manageable movie link to try to make it make sense to the audience. But I feel like, oh, if we only had the five hour version of the David Lynch that he you know would have been the director's cut, then it would be awesome. Have you seen the Alan Smithy cut of Dune? I remember seeing it on television. And I'm not sure what's different about the content of it, but there is a way more exposition in the beginning. And it's just like paintings that are done of like visuals during the movie of like, here's uh, Jetty Prime. And, and it was just like even more exposition than what Princess Ariolan gives us. Let's maybe just start the movie already. I guess we're entering the final things. Yes. Any other comments on uh, any of these versions or anything? Well, there was there was something that I just wanted to bring up in your list of homework for us before this. There was an article about Villeneuve wanting to make this a more feminist version. I don't know about you guys, but I think he failed. I think he failed entirely. And we'll only know when part two comes out. But the only female viewpoint we had was Jessica. And she was terrible. You know, her breakdown while Paul was undergoing the trial. It was the only the only female viewpoint we had, and it wasn't a successful, strong feminist viewpoint. We didn't see Chani. We haven't yet seen Aaliyah. We, you know, we haven't shout out Mapes was hi, I'm here, and that was about it. You know, I think we walk a few steps in Kynes's feet. That I don't think that made any difference as to whether that was male or female. And just switching a character from a male to female gender um, does not make anything feminist. It doesn't. It just means that the director thought that was the best person for, for the role. It didn't bring a feminist viewpoint. It could have come out of you know, any man's mouth just as easily as it could come out of her mouth. I agree, but I think there's something to be said for recognizing, especially in a book that is so binary when it comes to genders, that at least there are some characters where the gender doesn't matter. So rather than just defaulting to a man, at least he saw that, well, there's no reason, you know, just like there's no reason Duncan Idaho needed to be white. There's like all the characters or Yui needed to be white. Like in the David Lynch movie, like there's no reason that certain characters can't be played by female actors rather than male actors. I agree. There's no particularly feminist viewpoint of it, but it at least is a recognition of, you know, we don't need to default to some stereotypical casting choices just because they're the defaults. Yeah, the casting, the white aspect of it, that that bothered me too, because if you look at how far, if you just walk down the street, there are so many more interracial couples in the 2000s and interracial babies. 10,000 years from now, is everybody going to be white? You know, I, I think that was a casting misstep. It didn't need to be so blinding white with Timothy Chalamet. I thought about that would be a real aggressive casting choice to just say in the future, everything is evened out to a certain tone of Brown. And so we're not going to have anybody. We're just going to cast only people of you know Hispanic. I don't know what. Well, it didn't have to be only. It was just, let's, let's have a mix. That's what society is going to look like. You know, you will have, people who stuck to their ethnicity and people who over 10,000 years didn't. It just felt very, very whitewashed to me. Well, and there's, I don't know, at least the original novels are grappling with this. There's a lot of sort of problematic stuff in both the, uh, the potential white savior thing that I realized in reading articles about this, this, this film is supposed to be a critique of that. It's actually, no, the Fremen are the ones we're starting with from the Fremen point of view. And so that was a pretty big change here. And you know, I think they're going to run with that. It's not that Paul is coming in and teaching them how to do the great. In fact, he's kind of caught in this web of the prophecy. And, you know, it's not going to be a good thing that he's being their leader. So hopefully we'll get to movie three where we actually get to see that playing out. And yes, there's lots more we could say about Frank Herbert's really weird takes on gender and how they present problems to be solved by future filmmakers here. But at least he has the Benny Jesuit, this female organization that is doing important things, and they have the long-term view. And thanks so much for joining to just hash through some of this. Of course, we could keep, we could, we could have a whole, there are probably a whole Dune podcast. That's one thing I didn't get around to seeing 
if there were Dune specific podcasts that I could recommend, but I will maybe leaf among that to put in the show notes. Well, that's one of the things about the first novel and why it's hard to translate into different things and why it's a big opportunity to reimagine in different ways is that whatever its strengths and weaknesses, there's a lot there. There's a lot of world building. You know, when I've read Dune multiple times and you can read it as just, you know, an almost space opera like romp. You can read it as a political intrigue. You can read it as a transhumanism thought piece. You can read it as a kind of philosophical adjacent thing. There's a lot of different ways to approach all of the content that's in there. You know, he's Herbert throws a lot into that book. There's a whole ecology subplot <laughs> and, you know, that you know, dovetails with, you know, whether we take the long view of things. So I, I think there's a lot there. You could talk about just that one book from a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, the, the new movie is one way of approaching that book. I'll be interested to see the other ways that, that come out of it. There's a lot there. I guess I have to read this book again. All right. Thanks for nothing, Brian. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Aaron, do you have anything particular you want to promote? Well, we've got the new book coming out by Diana Gabaldon for Outlander and uh, season six. So just keep an eye on Three of by Space and we'll bring you up to date on all of that. And uh, I think that's about it. Excellent. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, listeners. So long. Bye, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. You can also now get all the bonus content directly through Apple Podcasts by signing up for a paid subscription there, which gets you ad-free episodes and extra talking not only for Pretty Much Pop, but also for my other podcasts, Nakedly Examined Music and Philosophy versus Improv. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.